The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Have you ever been to uh, an event or a party or a function, maybe a wedding or something like that, where it was pretty clear once you arrived and you had a bit of a look around, you had the thought to yourself, all right, no expense was spared here. Like this was just, they, they, they did everything here. No expense was spared. Uh, a number of years ago, I went to a conference, and I thought it was no big deal. It was actually a free conference. I thought it'd be kind of interesting. And when I got there, and I saw the venue, and I saw the food, and I saw just what they did for the, for the guests there, uh, one of those moments where I suddenly realized, wow, there must be some big benefactor behind this, because there was no cost too high for this conference. And I felt very honored by that. If you've ever organized a wedding before, or you're in the process of organizing a wedding, you might have had the thought, or you, you, you might wish you could have the thought, at least the freedom to say, that there is no cost too high for this. There is no expense that is too great. I had a bit of a, a Google search this week for the world's most expensive weddings of recent times. There are some ancient weddings that they've tried to kind of estimate how much they were, but I didn't include them in this. Uh, coming in at number eight, was Paul McCartney's marriage, a wedding to Heather Mills. And that was at number eight. That, that cost a total of $3.6 million for this wedding. Uh, in 2011, Prince William and Kate Middleton's wedding beat that one out. They actually got to spot number three. And they, it was actually about 10 times that much, a little bit shy of 10 times that much, at $34 million for their wedding. And then top in the list, Prince Charles and Diana come at number one the whopping $110 million budget for their wedding. That was adjusted for inflation. It seems that the more a person is esteemed or venerated, the higher the cost. For these people, the the people organizing this and paying for this, there was no cost too high. And we're looking at King Solomon today. And King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. And this is one of those moments, this is one of those times where no cost was too high. No expense was too great for this temple. The temple that Solomon built was singular in its extravagance. The most skilled craftsmen were used to use the, uh, were enlisted to use the best quality materials to construct this elaborate and massive and expensive building, this temple for the Lord. It truly was a masterpiece. And the reason why we're looking at King Solomon today is because we're in a series at the moment as a church called Monarch, where we are looking at the the history of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, and we're looking at to see if any of them is going to be the the one to fulfill all of the messianic hints and prophecies that we've seen so far throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, you just pick up every now and then just this little hint, this little something that says there's someone coming. To, to reverse the effects of sin. And we're looking through uh, the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings to do this. The reality, though, is that none of them are it. However, Solomon, if there's going to be any contender, Solomon might be a good contender for this. Because God promised his father, David, Solomon's father, David, that his son would play a very special role in the unfolding narrative of God's rescue plan in the world. 
We're going to find out eventually today that Solomon was not the one to fulfill this. There are some things that Solomon does, and he gets them really, really right. He does a great job, and it's fantastic. And then there are other things that Solomon does, and he gets things very, very wrong, and it's an absolute tragedy. So wrong, in fact, that it has history-shaping consequences. So let's briefly just walk through the, the, the timeline of Solomon's reign. We start in chapter 1 of 1 Kings. 1 Kings is where Solomon's, Solomon really come, becomes the main character at this point for the first 12 chapters or so. His reign got off to a pretty rocky start. The kingdom uh, was left in a bit of a mess at the end of his father David's life, and Solomon was left to clean it up. And by the time we get to the close of chapter 2, uh, a lot of blood has been spilled. David has uh, left a whole lot of things for Solomon to, to sort out once he passed away, some, some revenge to take place, to get back at some people, which Solomon does. And then he also has to deal with his younger brother, uh, sorry, his, his older brother, vying for the throne as well. And so he has to have him executed as well for treason. It's a really rocky start for the first couple of chapters. But amongst David's dying words to his son, he reiterates this covenant promise that God made to David, that he would establish a house for David. Not just a physical home, but a royal dynasty where his descendants, David's descendants, would, would remain on the throne and that God would be faithful to his servants. God would be faithful to David in that way. But this covenant, this promise, didn't come without its own stipulations and requirements on the descendants of David. David's sons, his descendants, they had to still remain faithful to God. God said, if your sons guard their way to walk faithfully before me with all of their heart and all of their soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And this covenant stipulation gets repeated again and again and again throughout 1 Kings. If you're the kind of person who likes to highlight things or underline things in your Bible, uh, just next to there, at that point, you could draw like a little triangle or a square or whatever. And every time you see this covenant stipulation get repeated, just record it. Just make a note. Oh, it's happening here again and again and again throughout First Kings. God keeps coming and, and saying, if you will be faithful, I will be faithful to you. So once the dust had settled from the rocky start, we learn in chapter 3 that Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. The dust has settled. It's, it's time for, for, for Solomon to really just kind of become his own man, to become his own king, and he makes an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying his daughter. And we might look at that and just say, seriously, what, what is going on there? And in fact, Reading through this left to right last year, I wrote above it, seriously. And then when I was doing my preparation for this week, I saw oh, I wrote that last, last year. Like if, if we've been tracking with this series, we'll know that God strictly forbade Israel's kings and Israel to, to make alliances with other nations, especially Egypt and especially through marriage. Don't do it, God said. And the first thing that Solomon does is get married. He goes and marries Pharaoh's daughter so he can make an alliance with Pharaoh. This is one of those moments that foreshadows, this little moment here foreshadows the epic and tragic downfall of Solomon's reign as he leads God's people. 
Yes, there were going to be high points in Solomon's career as king, but here at this point, just foreshadows, things are going to go pear-shaped at the end. His downfall would be at the feet of a problem with lust and desire. But one of the things that Solomon does get right also comes here in chapter 3, where God appeared to Solomon in a dream and asked him, or said to him, ask, what should I give you? God was establishing Solomon as he promised David he would. And he does this by virtually writing Solomon a blank check. What do you want, Solomon? I'll give it to you. And Solomon's reply, his request and reply, was for wisdom to govern and administer justice as he leads God's people. God, I'm going to need your help on this. I'm going to need your wisdom. I'm going to need your discernment to, to administer justice to your people. This is a massive task. I need you to help me out with this. And God was so pleased with Solomon's request that he gave him unparalleled riches and honor in addition to the greatest wisdom in the world. Solomon's unmatched wisdom is displayed throughout First Kings, as well as the book of Proverbs and, and elsewhere as well, with, where in Proverbs for 31 chapters, we can see timeless wisdom that penetrates and guides our hearts. And Solomon's wisdom, together with his opulent wealth and, and, his, and his influence, it garnered Solomon great fame throughout the world. It says in chapter 4, verse 29, that Solomon's God-given wisdom, very great insight and understanding were as vast as the sand on the seashore. His reputation extended to all of the surrounding nations, and he was unmatched everywhere. Emissaries of all peoples, sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. It wasn't just his wisdom, though, that he was remembered for. It was the, the temple that he had constructed for the Lord. It left both a historical and theological imprint on the world. You see, the, the temple was the, the physical location of God's presence on earth, where, where his people met with him and they, he, and they knew that he was there. Not that a building could ever truly contain God, but it was his design to demonstrate something about himself, that he was a God who dwelt amongst his people, a God that his people could approach. Before there was a temple, God used a tent for this, known as the tabernacle, dwelling place, that Moses had constructed while Israel wandered in the desert. And the design of this tabernacle was there to demonstrate God's holiness, that he is both uh, perfectly pure, faultless. No unrighteousness exists with him in it all. Perfect purity. But also, his holiness tells us that he is distinctly other than. There is no one like our God. God remains completely alone in his perfection. And the design of the tabernacle was to demonstrate this with uh, various concentric barriers leading to the holy place and then into the holy of holies, the most holy place, with various uh, requirements of those who would venture further into the tabernacle, further into the tent, to demonstrate that this was no small deal. God was holy. And even though this was a tent made with human hands, when this tent was completed in Exodus 40, it says that the cloud, which is God's presence with his people, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Think of glory like 
like wonderful fear. Like that, that sense of, like, you know, when you're standing at the foot of a great mountain, or maybe you see just a huge, ferocious storm coming across and it's barreling right towards you, and you kind of look at it and you wish you had a better camera on hand. And you know what you should be doing at that moment is going and getting, like, the furniture in the yard and, and whatever it is and, and tying things down. But part of you just wants to stay there and stare at it and see what happens because it's just so wonderful. It's like, that's incredible. I should get out of the way, but I can't stop looking at it. That's what the fear of the Lord is kind of like. It says, The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and, and that Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. At the completion of this tabernacle, God consecrated it. He accepted it. He said, Yes, I, I will dwell here with my people by entering it. So his people knew that he was in their midst. It wasn't just that, that they loosely believed that God's presence was somehow kind of strangely in the tabernacle with them. They saw the cloud enter it. They saw God enter the tabernacle. They knew that he was there. And so we fast forward back to Solomon where we are today. And the people of Israel, they are no longer a nomadic people in the desert. They're not, no longer walking throughout the desert. They, they've got a home with Jerusalem as their capital city. And so Solomon took up the task of building this temple to replace the tabernacle that his, day, his father David wanted to do, but it was something that God decided was for Solomon to do. And this temple became the center of all of life and all of worship for Israel. This temple in Jerusalem became the center point, the focal point for Israel's life together. And Solomon spared no expense in the construction of this temple. And we can see the, the details that First Kings goes into in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it is nothing short of a beautiful act of worship to God. In, in chapter 5, we get the details of the lengths that he went to, to get the best timber from the best location and have the best loggers in the world to cut it down and transport it to Jerusalem. Apparently, no one could cut timber like the Sidonians. And so the timber came from there, from the cedars of Lebanon. Solomon also drafted 30,000 laborers for the construction. And he would send them out, in, in, he split them up into thirds and would send a third away for a month at a time off to Lebanon to assist in this process while the others remained in Jerusalem and built. It kind of a bit of like a fly-in, fly-out kind of situation. They were going in, uh, getting the timbers and bringing them back to Jerusalem. Additionally, he had 70,000 potters and 80,000 stonecutters in the mountains quarrying for rocks and stones, and an additional 3,300 uh, site managers overseeing all of this. So if my math is right, we're somewhere in the vicinity of 183,300 workers to build this temple. And just to make it even more impossibly wonderful... Solomon commanded them to cut these stones and to finish these stones at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. I mean, that's staggering, right? When, when we first moved to, to Aura, we were, the, I think, the second people to, to move into our house, which meant that we were the first ones there, and, or amongst the first ones there, and we 
got to witness as everybody else finished their houses around us. We lived in a construction site for 12 months and it was dusty and it was loud and those tradies would rock up at 5.30 in the morning with their Nissan patrols and their meat pies and their, their cans of mothers and they'd sit there with their patrol going and listening to Triple J very loudly right outside our window thinking, I'm not going to get on the tools yet because I don't want to wake people up and it's 5.30 and it's, there's a factory under the bonnet of that patrol and waking us up and then it's just like concrete cutters at 6am and right up until about 5pm for 12 months. None of that here. No, no sound of chisels or anything like that. This is, a, this is a, a different kind of building. No cost was too great. Additionally, we can read in chapter 6 of all of the intricate carvings and the statues and the symbols that were created. And how virtually everything on the inside and much of the outside was overlaid with pure gold. First Chronicles uh, gives us the amount of precious metals that was provided. Of gold, there was 3,775 tons of gold provided for the temple. Now, if you're like me and you don't know what 3,775 tons of something looks like, um, if you were to get a Boeing 747... I say this for Rob because he's an airline pilot, which is helpful for him. The weight of, an air, of a Boeing 747 of pure gold and get a little bit more than 12 of them, that's the kind of amount of gold that was budgeted for the temple. And if you're like, listen, aviation, I just don't get it. If you, have you got a marine biology kind of illustration for me? Yes, I do. An 18, uh, if, you, if you were to get uh, a blue whale, an, an adult blue whale, a male adult blue whale, biggest creature on earth, solid gold, a little bit more than 18 of them. Like staggering amounts. Of, I, that doesn't help me, actually. I, that's still like, I've never seen one blue whale, let alone 18 golden whales. But... It's just a staggering amount. And then we get to the silver, which was 37,750 tons of silver were provided, and then more bronze and iron that they could be bothered weighing. The, just astonishing. Now, we don't know necessarily that all of that was used in the temple. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but that was what was budgeted. That was what was provided for this, set aside for this. No expense was too great. No cost was too high for the Lord. The temple was finished in chapter 7 with details about the utensils and the altars that were used for sacrifices and for worship. This was truly a magnificent feat. No expense was spared. There was nothing too much to ask for. It was stunning in its glory. Zeal for the house of the Lord had consumed Solomon. He was bent on honoring the Lord, and there was no cost too high and no expense too great for him. Friends, God is infinitely deserving of absolutely anything that we could ever give to him. There is nothing that we should ever hold back from the Lord. No expense on our behalf is too great to honor him, and no cost is too high. Psalm 97, verses 3 to 5 says of him, Fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. 
And if you were then to flick to the book of Job, after Job has finished complaining to God, the Lord finally speaks. And let me just read to you just six verses of God's interrogation of Job at the end of that book. Chapter 38, verse 19. God asks Job, where is the road to the home of light? I didn't know that there was a road to the home of light. Now, I don't necessarily think that he's talking about a literal road here, but he's saying this to demonstrate, Job, you have no idea what you're talking about here. Do you know where darkness lives? So that you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the paths to its home? He's asking Job these rhetorical questions that nobody can answer. Don't you know? You were already born. You have lived so long. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail which I hold in reserve for times of trouble for the day of warfare and battle? Look, God's just saying, Job, do you have any idea who I am? What road leads to the place where light is dispersed? Where is the source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? And that's just six verses at the end of Job. There's another 123 verses that are like that, over and over and over again. I mean, imagine going out into the wild. Imagine if you were just to hop on a plane and head over to Africa, and just you found just the most ferocious, most terrifying, just crazy looking its eye lion and somehow managed to trap it and bring it home and open the cage in the living room so that it could dwell with you. That's what is kind of going on with this temple. This is that God, that Lord, he is, is choosing to dwell with his people inside this temple, within this temple, so this people could approach him. That's the holiness of God. That's the, the, the idea is that it's not just like this, oh, yes, this is building, we can go there and you know, do our sacrifices or whatever. No, it was meant to be this thing that would be like, don't get too close to the temple, kids. Like it, it, it just should cause you to be unsettled in your heart. That's what the purpose of the temple was, just to demonstrate God's unbelievable glory. And in chapter 8, we come to the very important moment where the temple was finished. It says, verse 10, When the priests came out of the holy place, they'd taken all the utensils in, and when they came out, the cloud filled the Lord's temple, and because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So God consecrated the, the temple just uh, in, there for Solomon's temple, that he, just in the same way that he did in Exodus 40. God entered the temple and drove everybody out. And then we read in chapter 9 that Solomon praises the Lord and God replies to Solomon in that and reiterates the covenant promise again. And then in chapter 10, we get to what I think is one of the highest points in the Old Testament. The Queen of Sheba comes and visits. Israel is in the land. They have a king who honors the Lord. They have multiplied. They are a light to the nations. I mean, just, just have a look here at what queen, the Queen of Sheba says to Solomon. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. 
Israel is being a light to the nations around them. This is what Israel was meant to do. They have received blessing and prosperity. It's all pretty much wonderful. Like if you could get to the end of 1 Kings chapter 10 and then close the book and be like, and they all lived happily ever after. That's probably how I would have written this in my, in my, in my faulted mind. Because it's this moment where it's like, is, they've made it. They, they've made it to the land. They've got a king who, who honors every, There are lives of the nations. This seems to be the, the moment that the Old Testament has been building towards for so long. But that's not where the story ends. In fact, it all comes crashing down in the very next chapter. In chapter 11, King Solomon's biggest problem comes to the surface. It says that King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you. This isn't a race thing. This is, he says the reason why, because they will turn your heart away to follow other gods. They'll come into your house and they'll say, yeah, you can worship your God at your temple, but I'm going to be worshiping my God like this and, and this is how we do it. And, and they eventually turn his heart away. It says that to these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. Solomon's heart was turned away from worshipping God to worshipping the false gods of the pagan nations around Israel. He went on to build high places and altars for these false gods, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord was angry. He commanded him about this so that he knew, so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. I mean, tragic, right? So God tore away the kingdom from Israel just as he did with Saul. His sin led to God's punishment, which was to raise up Solomon's servant Jeroboam to rebel against Solomon and lead a factional split against Israel. Now, this wasn't to happen in Solomon's lifetime. God declared that this would come after he, after he died. Uh, and so in chapter 11, when Solomon does die, his son Rehoboam took the throne, but then imposed harsh conditions on the people. And then therefore, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel followed Jeroboam's lead, a rebellion against Rehoboam, and the nation of Israel was split by a civil war, with the 10 tribes in the north forming under King Jeroboam, and they would retain the name Israel, and then the two tribes in the south, Judah and Simeon, forming the nation of Judah under the rule of Rehoboam. And the question we might have at this point here is, what does this have to do with us? How, does, how is this relevant at all? And what does it have to do with Jesus? And I hope that we ask these questions. Like when we come to, to text passages, particularly in the Old Testament, if you don't get it, you should ask, what does this have to do with me? What, what is this all about? We should ask these questions of the Bible, especially in the texts that are a little bit obscure, and we should wait for the answers. We should spend our time in God's Word, digging into it, and waiting for the answer. If we do that, we'll be blessed. So how does this point to Jesus? That's the question that I had, this, I, I had at the start of this week. How does this story of Solomon point us to Jesus? To find the answer, we have to know just a little bit more history. 
So fast forward around 350 years in the future from where we are at in Solomon. And Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and they, they took much of the precious items that were left at that point and they took the people off into exile. 70 years later, after the temple had been destroyed, the people of Judah were allowed to return and rebuild the city, rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple, which they do. And so you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah as they're rebuilding the city and doing all this stuff, and you get to Ezra 6 when they finish completing the temple, and it's not as big as the last one. It's a little bit of a, a letdown for some of the people who were there who remembered Solomon's temple. And you're reading as they dedicate the new temple to the Lord, and, and you're looking for it to happen like the times before. Like remember in Exodus 40, they finished the tabernacle, God entered and drove everybody out. Get to 1 Kings 8, they finished the temple, God entered and drove everybody out. And you get to Ezra 6, the second temple is complete and nothing. They're having a big celebration. They're, they're observing Passover. Uh, there's joy in their hearts. As it, is, it is a good moment. It's not like they're all sitting there really disappointed with it. But something is conspicuously absent. The glory cloud of God doesn't descend and enter. It's left as a kind of unanswered question about this, this second temple. And this question remains unanswered for 400 years until in John chapter 2, Jesus enters the temple. God enters the temple, not as a cloud, but as a person. And what does Jesus do? He drives everyone out. Not because he approves of what's going on there, but because he disapproves of what he sees there. John writes, chapter 2, verse 14. In the temple, he, that's Jesus, found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. You see, these people, they, they, they'd seen that money could be made from this. There was a market here in the temple. People coming in, and you could turn away their sacrifices because they weren't good enough by uh, the, the Old Testament standard, and you could, you could then sell them your own approved sacrifices. This is actually quite a lucrative. Historians tell us this is actually quite a lucrative business. But the problem was the reverence was gone. There was no awe. There was no wonder. There was no trembling at the presence of God. This had become this thing that they just did to keep God happy. Just go in and make the sacrifices. Get it right. Don't disobey. Don't do the wrong thing. Keep God's law because we don't want to be sent off back into exile again. So everyone just do your best and keep God happy because as long as God's happy, like happy God, happy life. Like just keep him fine and we'll be fine and he'll stay in his lane and we'll stay in ours. And, and you know, just to make sure that people don't break God's law, we're going we're gonna to make some extra laws just to beef up those laws, protect those laws. And we're going we're gonna to make sure everybody follows those extra ones as well. That, that's what was going on. On here. 
There was no lion in their midst. Not until Jesus came. And Jesus came in, fero- came in with ferocity. Some people have tried to take the teeth out of this, kind of saying, oh, Jesus wouldn't have done something like this. Or, you know, maybe, the, maybe this was just like an outburst. He was just really angry. He was caught up in the moment, but he, you know, he, 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 it was just like a, a, a sudden outburst. But I don't think that the text allows us to do that. He, he stopped and made a whip out of cords. He, he had to spend some time doing that. Just imagine Jesus sitting off to the side with some cords, just fashioning that into a whip, getting ready to go. This became a, a premeditated act. God entered and drove everyone out. And the disciples who were there, they, they connected the dots, realizing that Psalm 69 wasn't just actually about David who wrote it or even about his son Solomon. Psalm 69 was talking about Jesus when it said, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is zealous for hearts that are wholeheartedly committed to God. Friends, can we say that we are wholeheartedly committed to God? Is that something that we can say of ourselves? Does zeal for the presence of God in our life consume us? I, I can't say that that's me. I need to grow in that. Maybe, maybe you've just resorted to just keeping God happy. That's, that's your kind of mindset. Just, as long as I just obey a, a bunch of just main kind of general rules about Christianity, God will be happy with me and that will be totally fine. God wants us to have the same kind of attitude towards him as Solomon had, that there's no cost too great for us to honour and glorify our God. Where's your zeal at? Did you want it back? Maybe it's kind of slipped away. And what Jesus shows us next, what Jesus does next, will show us why God deserves our utmost worship. See, the message is not this. Uh, God's really big and amazing, so you should do better. That's not the message at all. What Jesus says next totally throws that on its head. The Jews said to Jesus, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. The Jews didn't understand what Jesus meant, but the apostle John makes it clear to his readers. He was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. Jesus is the new temple. That's what he's saying here. Jesus was the embodiment of the presence of God on earth. Solomon built a temple to replace the tabernacle, and then the Israelites built a second temple to replace the one that got destroyed. And now Jesus is saying, I am the one to replace this. I am the temple. I am the embodiment of God on earth. I am where God meets with his people. Jesus has a physical body. And that body was uniquely manifest. Yeah, that body uniquely manifested the Father and became the focal point for how mankind could come to God. But there's something more because it, Jesus could have said to get that point. If that was on, Jesus' only point, he could have just said, uh, when they said, how, 
how are you justified to do this? He could have just said, I am the new temple. I'm the one to replace this. He doesn't say that. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. He's talking about his body. He's talking about his resurrected body. That, that we come to God through Jesus' resurrected body as our temple. That we look to the cross. We look to the fact that Jesus actually died. He didn't go into some kind of uh, like deep sleep. He actually died. The Romans knew how to kill people and they knew it when they had done it. And they pronounced Jesus dead. He actually died. And then he actually came back to life. He was actually raised from the dead three days later. And Jesus said, that's how you know that I'm, I'm, I'll, that I'm the new temple. That's how you will know that I am the one through whom you come to come to God the Father. It's by the cross that we come to the Father, by the death and resurrection of Jesus that we come to the Father. Why that? Why the death and resurrection of Jesus? It's because in his death, Jesus took our punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God against our sin, Jesus took that upon himself. He stood in our place and he, our sins were nailed to the cross. He became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and he was now to the cross. Christian, when you think about the cross, think of your sins being nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus Christ. You no longer bear them anymore. When you put your faith in Jesus, your sins go on to him. And as much as we would like to try and take responsibility for that, because we kind of feel like we should still be in control, we need to relinquish that. Let Jesus' death be the death of our sin. Let the cross do its work and actually take our sin away from us. May we know that we know that we know that my sin... The joy of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. We have no reason to feel guilt before God the Father because our guilt was taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. Let him take it. Let him take it. But it wasn't just that he died, it's that he came to life again. And he was resurrected in a, in a different body. Somehow the same, somehow different. How, how that works, it's hard to get our heads around. But what we know is that some disciples, when they came across him afterwards, after he was resurrected, they just could not tell that he that was Jesus. And then suddenly they could tell. And Jesus, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the first fruits of those who would be raised. He is the first one to be raised. That when we look at Jesus as, as a resurrected body, the res, our resurrected king, he's not just... He promises us that those who trust in him will be resurrected in the same way. That there is a future where the pain and, and the guilt and, and the shame and, and the... the the terror at, at, at the idea of God judging our sin is, is gone because we will be in perfect relationship with God the Father. We will see him face to face because of Jesus Christ. And, and that is the future of every single believer. And we need to let that eternal, that lifelong and eternal perspective have its say over today. 
We need to let, like that, that eternal perspective, heaven and, and the new heavens and the new earth and, and what, the, what the gospel has accomplished for us, that has something today about this afternoon. That's, that has something to say about this afternoon. That has something to say about tomorrow. About the way that we go about our lives, the way that we spend our money, the way that we, tr- we treat those around us, those we love, those we come across. It has something to say about us. It says that we've received everything we could possibly need in Jesus Christ. Absolutely everything. We are in need of of nothing else. For those who trust in Jesus for their salvation, all our sins are nailed on the cross. He stood in our place so that we could stand in his, in the presence of God the Father. If you're a Christian, then all of that is true of you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, hear me on this. None of that is true of you. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, but I've been pretty good most of the time. And I'm pretty sure, like, you know, it's a thought that counts. And, you know, as long as, as, long as God kind of looks at the good stuff that I've done and he's, he's, you know, he sees my intent with that, that I really tried my hardest, then when it comes to judgment day, I think I'll be all right. No, you won't. You won't be all right. You will have to pay for your sin. But if you're here and you're a Christian, Jesus has already paid for your sin for you. Jesus is the temple by which we come to God. His temple is not adorned with gold or silver or precious metals, but with grace, with mercy and kindness and compassion and love for you and I. Jesus said in the very next chapter of John 3:16, "For God so loved the world, and this God loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish." but have eternal life. Pay attention to the fact that God gave his one and only son so that we would not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. Jesus is God's great and costly gift to us. It's as if God looked at us in our sin and our rebellion and our hopelessness and out of his great love for us, he declared, no cost is too high, no expense is too great. He, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Friends, God deserves our everything because he has given us everything in his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 